So uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, things are looking like Christmas around here. Uh, we've got decorations, and uh, if you turn on the radio stations, you will most likely hear Christmas songs. And uh, Thanksgiving is over, and we're transitioning into Christmas. And that means uh, we're going to be doing a short three-part Christmas sermon series called The Prince of Peace, based off of Isaiah 9-6. Uh, so I hope you're excited about Christmas time. It's one of my favorite times of year for all sorts of reasons. In particular, we get to think about Jesus. Uh, I know it's cliche, but he indeed is the reason for the season. I want to begin this morning just by introducing this sermon series to you. And I want to show you a clip uh, from the movie called Mrs. Congeniality. Uh, it's an old movie, so uh, maybe you've seen it before. But uh, the star is Sandra Bullock. And uh, just to give you a little bit about what's going on in the show, uh, she is a cop. And uh, she has to go undercover as a, as a contestant as, at the Miss America pageant. And she has a bit of a transformation. She goes from looking uh, not as pretty as she normally does to looking very good. And she becomes this uh, Miss America uh, pageant star, all the while being an undercover agent trying to, to foil uh, some terrorist plot. I want to show just a quick video of the interview segment of the Miss America pageant in that movie. When, when the, the women are all asked this question. What is the one most important thing that our society needs? And here are the responses. I would have to say world peace. Definitely world peace. That's easy. World peace. World peace. What is the one most important thing our society needs? That would be harsher punishment for parole violators, Stan. <laughs> And world peace. Uh. <laughs> of course, a, a humorous, a standard Miss America uh, answer, right? Uh, world, world peace. Everyone seems to, especially as we think about the Christmas season, uh, to, for some reason that seems to be on our minds. And while we may snicker at the kind of standard beauty pageant answer, I think that this clip speaks to uh, what is a deeper reality for all of us. And that reality is this. I think we all hunger for peace at every level of our existence. We all, we all want peace. You know, we all want to live in a world where war and strife don't exist, where nation doesn't rise up against nation, where our young women and our young men don't have to die in the line of duty, where racial and religious tensions don't exist, where suicide bombings and terrorist attacks are never a threat. You know, we, we want to live in a world where there is peace. We want to live in a world where violent crimes don't exist. Rape, kidnapping, riots, physical abuse. We all want to live in a world where there's domestic peace, right? Where there's peace among people, where there are no shouting mashes, where there's no backstabbing, when there's no bitterness and unforgiveness, where there's no sharp and biting sarcasm, where there are no pointed insults, where marital conflict and divorce don't exist, where bullying in schools and kids being made fun of is is not a reality. We all long for peace. We also long to have peace within. We want peace of mind, don't you? We, we want to be free from fear, from worry, from anxiety. We want to be uh, uh, 
have, a, have a quiet confidence in the midst of whatever we may be facing, whether good or bad. We want to have a, a quiet confidence that things are going to work out, that things are going to be okay. And even to some degree, I think all of us, we want peace with God. We want meaning in life. We want purpose. We want a sense of, of intentionality that when we die, that things are going to be okay. And if we were honest, I think we would agree with the, the pageant contestants in this short clip that maybe the most, one of the most important things that our society does need is peace. We need peace. Not just our society, but, but we ourselves. We need peace. And so when we come to the Christmas season and when we come to texts like Isaiah 9-6, it should give us great hope to hear this. For unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called four things. You probably know them. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. And what's the fourth one? Prince of Peace. When we hear scriptures like Isaiah 9-6 that Christ has come to be the Prince of of peace. That should be wonderful news, both for us and for our world. When we come to the New Testament in Luke chapter 1, and we hear uh, the good news for us in our world that Zechariah speaks of the person of Jesus, that he will, quote, he will guide our feet into the path of peace. We want to know and to follow one who will guide our feet into the path of peace. And when the angels say at his birth, this familiar phrase, right, in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, what? Peace, right? And on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. When we hear these verses about Jesus who came, amongst other reasons, to give us the peace that we so desperately need and long for, it should be a joyful, hopeful thing. So here's where we're going to go for the next three weeks. It's a short three-part series. And what we're going to do is examine three types of peace. Three types of peace that Christ has come to give both uh, to us as Christ followers and ultimately to give to the world. When you look through the Bible and you do a word study on the word peace, um, lots of things come up, but you'll see a pattern both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And in the Old and the New Testament, uh, what you'll see over and over is, is three, what I'll call directions of peace. Three, three directions that God intends through the person of Christ to give us peace. First of all, he intends to give us upwards peace. That is, Christ has come to give us peace with God. Secondly, he has come to give us inward peace, that is, peace within ourselves. And third, he's come to give us outward peace, that is, peace among our brothers and sisters and fellow men, and even peace among the nations. And so that's where we're going to be headed. I hope you're excited, as I am, to get into the Prince of Peace sermon series. Um, this morning, we're going to look at the first one, Upward Peace. But before we do that, we're going to sing songs. We're going to uh, sing hymns of uh, Christmas and of, and of Jesus and magnify the peace-giving Jesus as we enter into the Christmas season. So let's pray, and then uh, we'll, we'll sing songs to Jesus, who has come as the Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Father, we anticipate what you're going to do in uh, these next few weeks, both in our, the life of our church and in our life as well. We thank you that you have come, Jesus, to be the Prince of Peace, to make a way for us to have peace with God through your blood on the cross. And because of that, you have given us the opportunity to have inward peace, to have peace within ourselves, to have the peace that passes all understanding. 
you say to your followers, my peace I give to you. What a wonderful promise. And not only that, but Jesus, you have come to give us outward peace, to to allow us to live in harmony with one another. And one day you will rule over the nations and war and, and strife will no longer exist. And you will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. And there will be finally peace in this world. So we thank you, Jesus, that you are the Prince of Peace. May you be well pleased by our songs to you. We ask in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing this morning. Well, howdy again. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them at this point in time. And uh, we're going to be in a couple places this morning. So uh, feel free to grab your Bibles and turn with me to the uh, book of Isaiah. Kind of in the middle of the Old Testament. Very big book. So open your Bible to the middle and uh, find your way to Isaiah chapter 53. And then if you uh, can find also um, Romans chapter 5. These two places is where we're going to be. If you don't have your own Bible, there should be a, a few scattered in the pew backs in front of you. And of course, the text should be on the screen. Uh, so this morning, we are going to be in part one of Prince of Peace. And we're going to be looking at how God has offered us and accomplished um, upwards peace with him. Upwards peace. Isaiah 53 and Romans chapter 5. As you're flipping there, I want to tell you a quick story. Um, in his book, uh, pastor, preacher, apologist, evangelist, uh, Ravi Zacharias, in his book, Can Man Live Without God, tells a, a story about uh, Joseph Stalin. And we all know who Joseph Stalin was and what he did. But he particularly tells a, a personal story about the, the, the last moments of Joseph Stalin on this earth, uh, a story of his death and how he died uh, in rebellion towards God, just as he lived his life. In his book, he, he writes this, a story I heard personally from Malcolm Muggridge that stirred me then and still does even yet today was his account of a conversation that he had with Svetlana Stalin, the daughter of Joseph Stalin. He writes, she spent some time with Muggridge in his home in England while they were working together on their BBC production on the life of her father. Now, according to Svetlana, as Stalin lay dying, plagued with terrifying hallucinations, she, he suddenly sat up halfway in his bed, clenched his fist towards the heavens once more, and fell back upon his pillow and died. The incredible irony, he writes, of, this whole, of his whole life is that at one time, Stalin had been a seminary student preparing for the ministry. Coming of age, he uh, made a decisive break, however, from his belief in God. This dramatic and complete reversal of conviction that resulted in his hatred of all religion is why Lenin had earlier chosen Stalin and positioned him in authority, a choice that, of course, Lenin uh, later regretted. As an aside, the name Stalin, which means steel, uh, was not his real name, but was a name given to him by his contemporaries who, who fell under his steel-like determination of his will. And of course, that steel-like determination of his will showed up even on his deathbed as his one last gesture, writes Zacharias, was a clenched fist towards God, his heart as cold and hard as steel. Interesting story of, uh, of a death of a man who lives... Uh, most of his life in rebellion towards God. His clenched fist towards God, I think, is a picture 
of what the Bible says is everyone's, mine, yours, everyone's, natural, rebellious heart towards God. The Bible paints a picture that when we come into this world, uh, we are not at peace with God, but rather we are at war with God. The Bible says when we come into this world, we bear the guilt of Adam, our forefather, and then we add guilt upon guilt with our own sin and our natural inclination to be uh, at, at opposed to God. And so we are at war with God. We need peace desperately. And thankfully, God has done a great work. He has initiated a peace treaty, if you will, in the person and the work of his son, Jesus. And so this morning... We're going to take a look at the first of three directions that Christ, as the Prince of Peace, offers us peace and has made the way for peace and allows us to have peace with God. And the first way is an upward peace, a peace with God that is foundational to all other peace. We have to have upward peace with God before we can have true inward peace, and we have to have upwards peace with God before we can have outward peace with other people. And so we're going to take a look at two passages in our time this morning that describe to us both our need to have upward peace with God and then how the person and work of Christ, which we celebrate at Christmas, has accomplished that peace with God and how he offers us this foundational upward peace with God. So I hope you have your Bibles open. Let's look now at Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, If you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, uh, you may be familiar with this wonderfully prophetic, poetic chapter that describes in great detail the coming person and work and rejection and even the resurrection of Jesus Um, hundreds of thousands of years before it actually happened. This is a wonderful text, and uh, I would commit to you uh, that this would be a a reading that you would read uh, over the Christmas season, all of Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, We're just going to take a look at verses 2 through 6, because it talks about how Christ made and offers us upward peace with God. First of all, we see that the Old Testament, not only in this passage, but other passages as well, uh, foreshadow that God would provide this upward peace through one who would make peace by removing the barrier between us and God. And what is that barrier? What is it that separates us from God? The Bible says simply that what separates us from God is sin, and it's our sinful, rebellious heart from which comes our sinful, rebellious actions, and that is uh, treason to the high king of heaven, the one who loved us, the one who created us, who made us for a relationship with himself, and we have rebelled against our high king, our benevolent, gracious high king, and we have wanted to be kings ourselves. And so we have rebelled against him, and he has pursued us in love. And what we see here is that the way that the barrier is broken is that someone, this prophetic passage foreshadows, someone will be the one who will take the punishment for our sins. There will be one coming from the perspective of Isaiah 53 who will pay the penalty that we deserve for our our rebellion against God and that in taking that punishment, he will offer us peace, peace with God. So let's read Isaiah 53, verses 2 through 6. Starting in verse 2, prophetically speaking of Jesus. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root 
out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Verse 4, we get to the heart of the matter. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our our iniquities. Now notice this. The punishment that brought us what? Peace. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of of us all. So here in this wonderful, poetic, prophetic passage, we see Jesus. What do we find out? We see in verse 3 that he was despised by mankind, that he was rejected by mankind, that he was familiar with suffering. And so we see at the very beginning that God would raise up one who would be rejected by mankind. He would come as a peace bearer, and yet we would reject him. We would have nothing to do with him. He would be a man familiar with suffering and pain, that is, he, like us, experienced pain of all sorts, but particularly the pain of being rejected by humanity who came for him. He was like one like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised. We held him in low esteem. And yet in verse 4, we see the way of peace that was made. He took our pain upon him. He bore our suffering. We considered him punished by God, which is exactly what happened on the cross as the Father punished the Son for our transgressions. Verse 5 is most pointed. How is it that we have peace? How is it that we are healed? Verse 5 makes it clear. It's using the language of substitution. It's using the language of substitutionary atonement. Even in the Old Testament, and the New Testament makes it clear, he was pierced for our transgressions, not for his transgressions. He was perfectly sinless, holy, spotless, the pure Lamb of God, and yet he was pierced on the cross for our transgressions. He was crushed for whose iniquities? For our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace peace was upon him. So there had to be a punishment upon this substitutionary lamb. There had to be a punishment upon him so that we could have peace, right? By his stripes, we are healed. He was crushed for our transgressions. And so this Old Testament passage foreshadows both our need for peace with God, and the way that God is going to make peace with us. And it's through one who bears our sins. It's through one who takes the punishment that we deserve, and he takes it upon himself. Notice the language in verse 6. It, it emphasizes this great need for peace with God. Notice the language. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, right? Each of us have turned to our own way. Not the way of the Lord, but we've turned to our own way. 
And I don't know much about sheep, but apparently they're prone to straying. And aren't we like that? Isn't every single human being like that? We are prone to stray away from God. Our sinful nature rejects, rebels against God, and we stray away. And so we see the need for peace. We see even prophesied the way that God is going to make peace. And it's through the punishment that he is going to inflict upon his very son. Now I want us to turn to Romans chapter 5. Because in Romans chapter 5, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 5 verses 1 through 11. We get an even clearer picture of how this is going to look like. We get the fulfillment of this prophecy of Isaiah 53 here and in numerous other places, but I I want us to focus now on Romans chapter 5. Just to give you a little bit of a background as to jumping into Romans chapter 5. Here's a short version, a a Cliff Notes version of of chapters 1 through 4. In chapters 1 through 4 of Romans, Paul has argued convincingly, overwhelmingly, that every person that has ever been born and will ever be born is guilty before a holy God, deserving of just judgment and hell forever. But forgiveness of sins, right standing before God, which he says is justification, being declared right before a holy God, right standing and righteousness that is of God, that is a gift from God, is available to everyone through faith in the perfect life and substitutionary death and life-giving resurrection of Jesus. So in four chapters, he says, we are all guilty, but we all have a way to be made right. We all stand guilty before God, and yet there is a way through faith in Christ, through trusting in him and what he's done, that we can be made right. And then in chapter 5, we have a transition chapter. Because in chapter 5, Paul transitions from we are guilty and yet we can be declared innocent into what are the ramifications of that? When you place your faith in Christ, when I place my faith in Christ, when I, when I did that, what are the ramifications? What are the implications? What are the results of having uh, been born again and placing our faith in Jesus as our sin bearer? Well, the numerous things, and he's going to share for three chapters, lots of things. But the very first thing that he says in chapter 5, verse 1, is that we have peace with God. That we have peace, upwards peace with God, because we have been justified, declared righteous through faith in Jesus before the eyes of God. And then what he does is he goes on in verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, to explain further implications. And so if you're here and and you're a Christian and you're born again, there's all sorts of implications of that personal faith in Christ. One is that you can know for sure that you have upwards peace. You have uh, been made right with God. But there are other things. I want you to listen to those as well. And then when he gets into into verse 6 through 11, he kind of talks a little bit more about how that peace with God came into being. So let's read chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 together. Therefore, Paul says, since we have been justified through faith, what is the result? We have what? Peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the very first thing, right? We can have upwards peace with God, and we can know that we are at peace with God when we come to faith in Christ. But that's not it. Verse 2, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, a strong word of 
assurance of every Christian. We stand firm in the grace of God and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. That is, we not only stand firm in grace now, but we can boast with assurance that one day we will be glorified with him. Verse 3, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. So not only is there hope for the future, but as Christians who have been made right with God, we have peace with God, we can glory in our sufferings? Wow. We can glory in our sufferings. Why is that? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given unto us. So here, he says, here are some wonderful results of being a Christian. You know that you can have peace with God. And not only that, you can have a sure hope of eternity. But not only that, here and now, in the midst of sufferings, here and now we can glory in our sufferings. And so Christian, I don't know if you're going through any sufferings now, um, but we can glory in that because God, in the midst of our sufferings, intends to build about a perseverance of our faith. And when we grow persevering through that trial, guess what happens? It produces character. And guess what happens? The more character we have, the more hope and the more assurance that we have. Verse 6. In verse 6, he explains this peace that we now have with God. He explains it in talks a little bit more about how it came to be and why we needed it. Verse 6, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I want to point out just a few things that we see, in particular in verses 6 through 11, about the natural state of humanity. Verse 6 through 11, I think, speaks very strongly to our utter need for this upward peace of God. I want to, I want to share uh, some four words that are found in, in these passages that describe humanity without Christ, our natural state. Number one, he says that we are powerless. That means we are without power to be reconciled to God. We, we, we cannot, on our own, be made right with God. And number two, he calls humanity ungodly. That is, we are opposite of godly. Our, our character is unlike God. Our actions are unlike God. We are powerless. We are ungodly. He says in verse 8 that we are sinners. And here's the most, maybe, uh, maybe the strongest of all. In verse 10, notice the language. What does he call us in verse 10? For if while we were God's enemies. Just let that sink in just for a second. When we are born into this world, and when we live our life before being Christians, 
Are we friends with God? What is the answer, church? No. What does this verse say? We were his enemies. We were like rebel, uh, rebel people under the kingship and the lordship of Christ. Like God is the benevolent king and he's done everything he can. And yet we have turned our backs against him. And we, we, we've rebelled and we have made ourselves his enemies. We are not morally neutral. I don't know if you recall, this was many years ago. But uh, there in Texas, we tend to keep up with the presidents that came from Texas. And uh, one of the more recent ones was George W.H. Bush. That is the first one, not the second. And uh, I ran across a story that I found interesting uh, many years ago. I don't know if you recall, but apparently at some point, there was a bit of a controversy around his presidency. And it wasn't uh, uh, around a big thing, but it was around uh, a vegetable. And uh, it was centered around uh, one of my favorite vegetables, which is broccoli. So here's how the story goes. Uh, After it was disclosed at some point that President Bush had banned broccoli aboard Air Force One. So apparently at some point he said, in my airplane, there will be no more broccoli. Uh, Well, the nation at some point for a brief time was embroiled in a broccoli discussion uh, along with the president. As broccoli growers were dispatched uh, dispatched tons of vegetables to the D.C. to get the president to eat his vegetables, right? To eat his broccoli. He reiterated his distaste with, with gusto. And this is, this is what he said, and I'll quote him at this point. He says, I do not like broccoli, and I haven't liked it since I was a little kid, and my mother made me eat it, and now I'm the president of the United States. I'm not going to eat any more broccoli, end quote. <laughs> You know, when you're the president, I suppose you have the right to say, I'm not going to eat any more broccoli. Now, uh, I'm sure the president uh, knew, uh, because apparently his wife liked broccoli, that uh, it was good for him. You know, that it was a good thing to eat your vegetables, and, and particularly to eat broccoli. But, but he said, you know what? I- I'm not going to eat broccoli. I think what Romans is saying is that naturally we feel the same way about God. We know he's good for us in a sense, but we just don't want him. We just don't want him. Colossians chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, I just want to read it to you, use a similar language. Chapter 21, verse 21 through 22 says this, once, once you were alienated from God, notice the language, once, before you were Christians, once you were alienated from God and were enemies, there's that language again, in your minds, why? Because of your evil behavior. So as people, our evil behavior causes us to be enemies with God. Verse 22, But now, for those who have placed their faith in Christ, but now he has reconciled you. Notice the language. You were once not at peace, and now you are at peace. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, without blemish and free from accusation. If this is the case, that we are not at peace with God, then we need to be reconciled with God. And so, friend, I want to close by asking you a very serious question, maybe the most important question that anyone will ever ask you, ever. Have you been reconciled to God through personal faith in Christ? Do you have upward peace with God? The kind of peace that we're talking about. Have you received the righteousness of God and become a new creation in Christ? Have you been reconciled to God? And if not, now is, not, now is the time. Tomorrow is not the time. Next week is not the time. Now is the time. Because peace, 
Peace with God is foundational to all other areas of peace. So listen, we have to have peace with God first. We have to have peace with God before we can experience inward peace. If you want inward peace, then you need to know the one who says, peace I leave with you and my peace I give to you. If we want to have outward peace with others, with our, in, our, in our marriage, with our kids, amongst our friends, even amongst our enemies, with our neighbors, then we need to have Jesus living inside of us, the one who, quote, will guide our feet on the path of peace. If we want to experience someday a world that will be a world of peace where nation will not take up the sword against nation, Isaiah 9, nor will any, anyone train for war anymore, then we need to know the one who is the prince of peace. And so friend, let me ask you, do you have upward peace with God? Do you know that you are right with God through faith in Christ? It's foundational. It's a must. Close with a story of a king of many years ago. And the king had been through a very long and arduous uh, civil war where there had been much rebellion uh, against him, though he had been uh, a benevolent king, a just king, a fair king, um, a, a good king. And at the end of the war, when he had defeated the rebels and his armies had captured their bases, they surrendered their arms and these rebels threw themselves at his feet, according to the story, and they begged him for mercy. And so he, he pardoned them. He gave them a pardon. And one of his friends in the royal court said to him, didn't you say that every rebel would die? Didn't you say that every rebel deserved death? To which the king replied, yes. And then he uttered these words, but I see no rebels here. Friends, Can Jesus say that of you? I see no rebels here. If you turn to him for mercy, if you receive his righteousness as a gift and trust in that alone, he will forgive your sins. He will reconcile you to him. And he will say of you, as the king of old said to his subjects, I see no more rebels here. Let's pray. Father, if there's a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, a teenager, a young person, and they're sitting here now, and if they were honest, they would know that their hearts are full of rebellion. Their hearts do not submit to you. They don't submit to your word. They are shaking their fist at you like Stalin. They are your enemies. They know that they live in evil behavior that makes them enemies of you. May they know and turn now to the benevolent king who offers his very son as the sacrifice to pay the penalty for their rebellion, who comes to them offering a peace treaty that is unlike any other peace treaty our world has known. You come to them now and you offer them forgiveness of all of their sins, past, present, and future. You come offering pardon and a reconciled relationship you come offering that you give them your spirit that they might be new people. You come offering eternal life and a future resurrection and so much more. And so, Father, I pray now, if there's a man, woman, or boy, or girl, that they would turn from their sin, place their faith in Christ, and cry out to him to be saved and that they would be born again. 
Father, for those of us who have experienced this upward peace with God, we rejoice with Paul, knowing that because we have been just, justified through, through faith, that we do have peace with you, that we have gained access into grace, and we stand firm in that grace, and we boast in this wonderful hope of the glory of God. And yet here and now, in the midst of our sufferings this Christmas season, we know that because we have peace with God, you have a purpose for it. You want us to persevere in it. You want us to build character through it, and that in that, our hope would abound all the more. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters now that this foundational upward peace of God that they are experiencing and know, that they would know that there's so much more that you offer. Father, give us grace this Christmas season and give us peace, we pray. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Let's do this. I'm going to stand and offer a, a, a peace of a blessing of peace from First Thessalonians. So would you stand with me and I'll offer this blessing. First Thessalonians 5.12 says this, 23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. See you next week.